Okay, this is a talk, and, a, and a, an attempted visual presentation of Chetel Sange Dorje. Now, has anyone not heard of Chetel Rinpoche, Chetel Sange Dorje? Okay, a few people haven't. Uh, as far as I understand, this is a uh, series on some of Sangharachita's teachers here, yeah? uh, his main teachers. So this is one of Sangharachita's teachers. And he's sometimes known as uh, Chetel Rinpoche, or Chatra. It's spelt in lots of different ways, so uh, you'll come across it in some ways. Now what's interesting about him, and here's a picture of him, I took this photograph, and I'll, hopefully we'll see a few more photos that I've taken before. Uh, he's still alive, he's the one remaining uh, teacher, or main teacher of Sangharachita who's still alive. Yes. Sangharachita is the founder of the FWBO and the Western Buddhist Order. He had various teachers, if you read his autobiographies, he's, he's all sorts of teachers. I, I, I'm not going um, And. <coughs> Go on, is it actually recording? It's just, a, it's just another thing to stress <laughs> it. Alright, we can always scrap it. Um, so he has various teachers, and um, one of them is still alive, and this is Chattel Sange Dorje. Now, this photo was taken in about 1991, so, uh, and he's still alive, and it's 2008, so he's sort of well into his 90s. He's still, he's still going strong, apparently. He's a he's a, gets a little bit <coughs> ill and needs some medical um, treatment, but um, he's an uh, impressive-looking figure. Chatral, one who has abandoned all mundane activities. So he's a, there's a renunciant uh, element to him, and it's very appropriate, that name, to him. Sangye is Tibetan for Buddha, and Dorje is Tibetan for Vajra, uh, thunderbolt or diamond. So we're a bit more uh, familiar with uh, Sanskrit terms generally in the FWBO, and we talk about Vajras quite a lot. But uh, when you come across Dorje, uh, Darjeeling uh, is, is Dorje Ling. It's the place of the thunderbolt, the place in the Himalayas. So it's a sort of variant. It must have uh, slipped out of the Tibetan into Darje somehow. Uh, so he's the one, the, the, the diamond Buddha who has abandoned all mundane activities. Yeah, quite, a, quite a strong name. <laughs> ah, okay. So I've got a little story. Um, what I'd like to do is just sort of really communicate not so much about Chetel Sangha Dorje's teachings. Prabhash was saying, well, perhaps down here we talk about theory and meditation. Uh, this is not going to be a theoretical talk. Uh, and it seems to be, he doesn't really, he hasn't really written anything. Um, he, he, he sort of is very difficult to pin down and much more of a sort of one-to-one, -one, uh, in-the-moment teacher. Uh, so I'm going to sort of try and present Chetel Sange Dorje through images. I'm going to hope that just presenting quite a few images of his face and his life, you might actually receive a teaching through that. Because I think that's often what happens um, for people who meet Chetel Sange Dorje. In 1991, I uh, went to India uh, with some friends to do a pilgrimage and to see Sangharachita on tour. He was giving some talks uh, on a return visit. And one thing I wanted to do was to see some of the Buddhist sites, uh, but also I was with a friend who knew how to 
get to meet Chetalthangi Dorje. So I flew into Kathmandu in Nepal, spent a bit of time in Kathmandu, and then took this really long 12-hour bus journey. Uh, some of you might have done it. Um, Kalimpong down to Siliguri. It's really rough, bumpy roads, and um, dreadful. One of the worst uh, journeys I've ever done, because it's dusty. We're sitting next to a window, and the window wouldn't close, and it's a dusty road. And I, I was leaning at it tr- against the window, trying to sleep on this, this bus and hold the window closed. And then I'd go to sleep, and the window would sort of slide open, and dust had come in. It was, it was dreadful. We were all feeling a bit sick. And I think we'd managed to sit on the, above the wheels or something like that that made it even more bumpy. But we got down to Siliguri, which is down just into India. And this is uh, one of the first things we saw when we managed to actually eventually get to his, um, uh, his, his, one of his monasteries. In fact, we were quite lucky. There was a sort of sense of um, synchronicity going on because on the way down, we weren't quite sure how to find this place. And Suvadra, who is a senior member, member of the Western Buddhist Order, who I was with and a friend of mine, he said, look, we'll find it somehow. We'll just sort of keep our eyes and ears open. And we got down to Siliguri, which is a, quite a dusty, busy, noisy, not particularly pleasant city. And from the window of the bus he saw a Tibetan monk. And so he said, oh, right, when we get off, I'm going to, because we're just about to pull into the, the bus park. He said, I'm just going to go and see, you know, just going to go and grab that monk and see if he knows. So we let him go off. We looked after the baggage, myself and Amri Jyoti, another friend. And he, so Vadra came back 10 minutes later. He said, he's one of Chetosangi Dorje's uh, monks and he's going to show us where it is. And, it's, and, he, and he also he's told us where a good uh, hotel to stay just around the corner is. <laughs> And uh, he, he directed us up to Chetalsangi Dorje's place. Ah, yes, we're getting, we're getting somewhere. So for one of the first people we met was um, Kusa Kamala, uh, who is uh, Chetal Rinpoche's wife. And they've got two daughters. And she's a very strong character. Uh, here's Suvadra. Uh, talking to her and he's asking her about Chapel Rinpoche and trying to get some idea of who, who he is and a bit more of his life story and um, we had a real thing trying to get something about Chetal Sangha Dorje's life story and in the end she got a little bit a little bit annoyed I think with Suvadra and she said look he's not going to give you his life story he, he, he just doesn't do that lots of people keep asking him but, she said, the only way you'll really get to know about Chetal Sangha Dorje's life is by asking other people. Yeah, you just have to go around and it's going to be like a jigsaw puzzle because he never will give his life story. And Sivadra was you know, really frustrated because he wanted to write a book about Chetal Sangha Dorje. He thought it would be really good. He's, he'd already written a book about Dardo Rinpoche, yeah, who is another of Sangha Rachida's teachers. He thought, well, I'll, I'll write another one. I'll write to write one about Chetal Sangha Dorje. But this was not going to be so easy. Note the lovely old car in the background. It's a beautiful car, which um, I guess is owned by the monastery. And actually, while we were there, he was in the middle of some celebrations, uh, celebrating Dujon Rinpoche's death anniversary. And there was all sorts of pujas and activity going on. And then suddenly, in the middle of it, we saw him come out, and he just got into there, and this driver just drove him off. 
and we asked what had happened. And he said, oh, he's just got to nip out because someone's ill <laughs> in the local town and he's just going to go and, you know, give a bit of healing or something. And then he'll come back and carry on with the, with the puja that he was, you know, facilitating. So Sivadra wrote um, a little journal. This is available online with the full story. You can look it up on uh, Majamavani online. He says, the next day we rose and Julie arrived early. Although I had met Chatral Sange Dorje twice before, this was to be Amarajoti and Padmakara's first time, and they looked look forward to it very much. We readied our gifts and offering scarves and incense, and were ushered up the ste- steep stairs of the corrugated iron-roofed house at the far end of the compound into Rinpoche's room. There sat the grand figure of Chatral Sange Dorje, his intense eyes and large fleshy nose splayed across his weather-beaten, walnut-coloured face. A huge bushy beard framed the face in a silver aura and a russet-coloured knitted woolly cap sat like a tea cosy atop his head. He was just as I remembered him two years previously. He looked more than ever like an old sea dog than a guru. He wasn't wearing the maroon robe of the monk, but an ochre-patterned Tibetan chuba lined with unspun sheep's wool, tied at the waist with a belt of orange cords. Round his neck hung a dark beaded mala with white bone beads, marking the quarters and, do- quarters and bell and dorje markers hanging on orange threads. Over his lap, a broad-checked fawn and brown travelling rug kept him warm. So I've just put that in because it's such a lovely description. And he, and he is like... Uh, an old sea dog, really. He's an amazing-looking character. I, I, the image I had was a bit like an old um, oak tree, you know, a really old, gnarled oak tree. He had a face that was sort of deeply gnarled and wise, and, of course, it's a fantastic beard, an ama- amazing sort of depth of feeling. That's his daughter behind. So I can't remember whether, which one she is, whether sh- she's um, Saraswati or Tara Devi, but... But she is very bright, speaks quite a few languages and translates for him. So, um, again, these are photographs I, I took. He's on his way up to his quarters and um, where we saw him. And he was very kind to let us take some photographs. He's a bit wary of... In fact, he's quite wary of um, Westerners, especially as someone tried to attack him a few years ago. Um, it turned out this American guy had some psychotic episode, but... Um, it's, he's sort of a bit wary of it and uh, unsolicited photographs he, uh, he doesn't like he, he's, he sent around a letter to men to a lot of monasteries saying uh, people are using my name in the wrong way and claiming that I'm their guru and I don't want people to do that you know stop doing that you know, I'm, you know if you're not uh, a disciple of mine don't say that you are it's, it's very bad karma So um, we got to see him, uh, and we had various things we wanted to give to him. So one, one was we gave him some incense, and uh, he, he lit that, which is which is nice. And I had a photograph of all of Sangharakshita's teachers. Um, that's Dujon Rupche, Dilgo Kiense, Jamyang Kiense, Dardo, Jagdish Kashap, Mr. Chen, and. Um, uh, and Chattel Sangha Dorje himself is on this sheet with all the different teachers and Sangharachita. So you, you can see he's laughing because he's looking at it. 
And he's really enjoying looking at some of his friends and his own teachers um, who are no longer alive. And he's going, oh, yeah, that's... Uh, oh, do jump, do jump. You can hear him sort of going, oh, do jump, do jump, do jump. Very, very good, you know. And, uh, oh, Jamyang, Jamyang Kensei Rinpoche. Yeah, Jamyang Kensei Rinpoche. Yeah, very good, you know. He's really pleased to say that. And then, oh, do Dilgo, Dilgo Kensei. You know, so he's listing them. He, you know, he's... he's one of the, the big llamas with these and then he didn't recognise a couple and then he goes and who's that who's that one and, you know, and we said well that's you it's you Rinpoche and he goes oh no no <laughs> so he was, he was playful he was playful Rinpoche this is Suvadra again Rinpoche put questions to us through his young and beautiful daughter it was established that we were disciples of Sangharachita and we passed on Bante's best wishes and respects Padmakara gave Rinpoche a photograph of Bante to look at, but seeing his own ob- obvious delight, Padmakara decided to let him keep it. We also showed Rinpoche a copy of Bante with all his eight main teachers. This excited a lot of interest in Rinpoche, his family and his attendants. Yeah, yeah, Jujom Jujom Tulku, Rinpoche called out in recognition. Jamyan Kiense Rinpoche, Dilgo, Dando. Yeah, yeah, Kachu Rinpoche, yeah. But who was the Chinese man? That's um, Mr. Chen. But we told him he hadn't. We told him, but he hadn't heard of him, and so on. And then he says, "Well, who's this one?" And it's you. We all chorused. He peered even closer at the picture of himself, as he must have looked 35 years ago. He looked up at everybody in surprise, looked back to check, and then laughed heartily at himself for not recognising the photograph. Yeah, 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 yeah. He rumbled over and over to himself in his deep bass voice. We all chuckled to ourselves. So he's studying it there. And then that's coming out. That's his tea cosy uh, hat that he's, he wears. He seems very fond of that, actually. I'm not sure whether I should keep that. I, I don't think he wanted me to take it. It's slightly blurred. And I felt uneasy after I'd taken it. He, he was happy to, for us to take other photographs, but I think that was a bit later. So I wonder whether I should probably delete it, really. That's his wife again. And the uh, the stupa at his place. So that's a stupa with a shrine room underneath it. And we we went back the next day to do um, a puja with him. And like I said, they were celebrating. I think it was the tenth death anniversary of the death of Dujon Rinpoche. We think that's what it was. They were celebrating something to do with one of those other other teachers. So it was auspicious that we'd brought the pictures of the other teachers there and one of them had died and they were celebrating so it's nice you know things like that happen don't they in India when you're doing this sort of thing so it looks quite small but we all crammed in there there was just three or four of us westerners and then all a lot of his other monks all sort of crammed in it was a bit of an embarrassing um, moment for me well there's a few embarrassing things happened here and I think this is how um, he probably teaches and it's probably the sign of a good teacher we didn't ask him any specific questions yet. We didn't go sort of thinking, well, I want to ask him profound questions about the nature of shunyata or zogchen practice. We just wanted to meet, say hello, and you know, give a few gifts. And Sivadra did want to try and get some information about his life out of him, which was unsuccessful. But we, so the next day, we went into this, um, into the uh, the gompa, the, the into the stupa for. Um, for the celebration 
and it was all going on. It's one of these all-day things that the Tibetans do, and you sit there. Now, I'd got with me um, a, one of those folding wooden stools, a little light folding stool to carry around with me in India. So we went in, and I was a bit like, what, you know, it's very unfamiliar to me, all this sort of what's going on, I don't know, Tibetan ritual. So I unfolded my stool, sat down, and nearly all the monks just looked around like this, and I thought, oh, it's it's because we're Westerners, isn't it? And then I thought, there's something not right. And then Suvadra sort of went like that. You're too high. <laughs> You're too high. And Chetal Sangha sits really low, but it's still etiquette to sit lower than the, the guru. You know, that is what you do in the Tibetan tradition. Now, often the Tibetans, I think, sit on a higher plinth, but him being Chetal Sangha just sits his really low one. And there, all the monks are sitting right on the floors. And I'm up there, and I'm actually higher than him. So... Uh, I, go, I just sort of squeezed my, the leaves in and just sort of shrunk down like that. It was really embarrassing. It was really, it was really humbling. Being so stu- I felt really stupid. But that wasn't the end of it. You know, it wasn't like, that was the first teaching. Okay, this is a lesson in humility. The next thing that happened was uh, we sat through and we just listened and we recognised a little bit of the Tibetan and joined in with the mantras if we, you know, some Padmasambhava mantras and we'd join in. Um, and then there was a food offering thing. Yeah, this sort of, um, maybe it was a Ghana chakra site ceremony, I'm not sure. But anyway, it involved food, lots of food on the shrine, and then passing the food around to, um, to people. Now, if anyone's been involved in Tibetan tradition, they'll probably be able to tell me exactly what was going on. But anyway, it was supposed to be blessed food. So it came around, and people were eating it. So, you know, put, put my hand out, and they gave us some. I was going, oh, this is good, you know, looking around, you know, looking at the walls and the tankers and, oh, there's Chetel Sangi Dorje, we're here, you know. And, uh, but the monk who'd given me the food was still standing like this in front of me. I sort of go, what, what's going on? And again, it was me, really stupid. You, you also, you then put some back for the, uh, the hungry ghost. So you've taken it, and then you go, and there's some back, and that will go to the hungry ghost. And that's what everyone else had been doing, but had I been t- paying attention? <laughs> <laughs> Very embarrassing. And again, Suvatra goes, you've got to put a bit back. Just put a bit back. <laughs> and, you know, you could see the monk looked a bit annoyed. And <laughs> it's like, oh, God, what's going on? So, lesson number two, humility, not being aware enough. Anyway. The thing about those sorts of humiliation stories is you never forget them. <laughs> They're just deep in you. I still cringe going there's a picture of the younger um, Rinpoche. I don't know how old he is there. Maybe in his 40s or something like that. There aren't that many uh, earlier photographs of Chapter Rinpoche. This is one of the few that's around. In later years, there's, there's quite a few more of him. In his lovely, you'll see a few. I've got quite a few but with his long beard. And That's in his 80s, yeah, so a decade ago. I think that picture really is one of the best. Um, it's, a, it's, it's quite popular, that one. And uh, I just think it really gets him. That was about the age where we saw him as well, so it's, for, for, for me it brings back lots of memories. You see what I mean about that amazing face and the clit and eyes, you know, it's like... It's the same. Well, I think he's probably got several, <laughs> but he seems to wear red, you know, really nice woolly. <laughs> but yeah, he's got. He's nearly unless he's in ceremonial gear, he's always got a hat on. That's why I'm a bit uncomfortable about that picture of I've got of him without a hat on. I, I think it's disrespectful. So I'm, 
I think I should do something about that. I think he's always got that hat on as a casual. Having said that, that's that's quite a that's quite a common picture as well. So it's a beautiful photograph. He's got some. Uh, he's looking quite meditative with these herbs or flowers. He was born in eastern Tibet in 1913. Okay, so he's now about 95. That'd be Cam. Is it Cam? Anyone know? Cam? The Cam. I think it's the Cam. Calm. Calm region uh, in, uh, in eastern Tibet. You'd see this if it was uh, doing properly, so I'll read them out. Uh, Rinpoche's main teacher was the abbot of Catholic monastery, Nagwang, I can't pronounce it, Nagwang Palzang, who bestowed the Long Chen Yingtig heart drop teachings on the essential point concerning the mind's nature. Uh, he's considered to be a heart disciple of Dujon Rinpoche, and Dujon Rinpoche is another of Sangharachita's main Tibetan teachers. Uh, I think Dujon Rinpoche was head of the Nyingmapa um, school of Tibetan Buddhism. Very important teacher. And for many years in Tibet, Chapter Rinpoche meditated alone in caves and was renowned as a realised yogi. Still is very, very highly regarded. Rinpoche would always walk on foot, refusing to use a horse. He would only live in a tent never wishing to accept the invitation of wealthy patrons to stay in their house. In fact, you'd sort of, uh, you hear this sort of story of quite a few of these sort of style gurus. They, they're really quite strong. I think Patrol Rinpoche was uh, he, uh, not his immediate teacher, but um, probably one of his main inspirations, and similar things happened with him. People would come with quite wealthy offerings and... Uh, and then they'd find that they'd walked away and left the offerings by the bonfire or something, you know. And he does the same sort of thing, and we had an experience of that. So again, Sivadra was trying to get more information out of him, and he'd gone off to the market, Sivadra had gone off to the market to buy Chapter Rinpoche a present. So he thought, oh, it'd be really nice to buy him one of those Tibetan offering vases, you know, the uh, little vases that you do rituals with or just you know they're on the shrine and uh, so he came back to give Chetal Sangha Dorji this offering vase and he was outside uh, Chetal Sangha Dorji was supervising some building work outside his monastery so Suvadja went up an appropriate moment and uh, Chetal Sangha Dorji had an American guy with him who was one of his disciples and his uh, translator I don't think he speaks much English he probably speaks a bit but so anyway, Suvadra went over to Chattel Sangha Dorje and uh, said, Rinpoche, um, just want to say thank you for letting us come and visit and I'd like to give you this. And, and there was sort of silence and, and, and he didn't do it. He just sort of stood there. And Suvadra said, uh, through the translator, I'd just like to you know, give him this for his shrine room because I know you're building a new shrine room. And, and he says, oh. and about the third time... Um, Suvadra actually was sort of putting it in his hands. It's for you. It's a, you know, it's it's for your shrine. And he almost dropped it. He just wasn't going to take it. And and eventually the American guy said, "Look, look, he doesn't want it. <laughs> he doesn't want it. He just doesn't want it." <laughs> 
So Suvadra sort of, that was his little bit like, oh, um, you, you, you just don't know what's going to happen. He didn't want this offering. And I think that he's very sensitive to motive. That's my interpretation. You never know with this guy, you know, what's going on. But I think that he, he was happy for us to be there. Um, he was very kind and generous with us. But there was a point, and I, this is what I sort of got um, non-verbally, which, okay, guys, you're very welcome here, but you don't need to give me any, any um, gifts. Uh, I'm not going to give you my life story. Go away and practice the Dharma, <laughs> you know. Go away now. Go and get on with it. You know? And that was the unspoken message that I come away with. So he didn't want Suvadras. I don't, never know what happened to that uh, offering thing eventually. I must ask him sometime. This is great, isn't it? Still a wanderer. So uh, it's a great picture of him off with a backpack. Uh, apparently he just goes off. and He probably doesn't do this now. I, I think he probably is a bit too old. But this isn't... This must be in his 80s still. Might even be in his 90s. But he's got his backpack. Um, I think that's probably a small tent. He might have a little bivy tent. I think he just, he's just gone off and go off in a tent for a bit, disappear. He's got a reputation for just disappearing, wandering around. I'm sorry there's nothing special about me and I have nothing to teach you. Please go elsewhere for teachings, he said, uh, said to various people. <laughs> Fantastic. Ah, okay. Rinpoche is widely respected. Munisha, over there, took this photo in a private house in Bhutan. So he's uh, respected all the way over in, into Bhutan. Uh, it's actually what it's here, he's here with a frame with a picture of Pabasamba, Swaminarath. That's actually also him there. And I think that's the 17th Karmapa. I'll mention again a bit later at the end. So he does get around. Ah, okay. So I've got, um, if this audio clip works, <laughs> a little five minute audio clip. This is why it's not working because I'm trying to do a talk on Chattel Sangha and I put a slide in that I don't think I should have taken. And I think he's giving me a teaching now. It's all about. It's, Chetan Sangadori is giving me ongoing teachings about humility. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. so, I met him in 1966, when we were spending a few days in Kalisha. Uh, who was a strong scholar of Nima Prabhupada. He was a fairly famous writer in Even though he wasn't very old, he was only about 35 at the time, and he was not a cooker, he was not an Italian writer. And he had quite a reputation for eccentric behavior and eccentric uh, utterances. He was a follower of the Nima tradition, but um, he wasn't a monk. So he lived very much like a monk, at least at that time. Hmm? And uh, when I asked a friend of mine whether he was a monk, the friend said, well, he may be a Ghanaian, yes, a novice monk. He didn't wear any big words. He wore a sort of old red coat lined through sheepskin and not like that. Yeah? And he had a very unprepossessing appearance. 
I must say, he was the ugliest of my teachers. <laughs> <laughs> a very unattractive appearance, no charisma. Huh? <laughs> but if you passed it in the bazaar, you'd think he was some sort of you know, muleteer or small shopkeeper or you know, cutthroat of some kind. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't look at all attractive. Huh? Uh, anyway, uh, I've uh, well, sometimes been thinking that I, I should get device for a tantric initiation. My reason for doing that is the one that I'm not going to tell now. There's someone who couldn't perhaps find a better person than, than, than him. There were very few in Karnavalas around in Karnaval at that time. So uh, I asked him for an initiation and he said, come back the following day. And I came back the following day and uh, after a little discussion he said, uh, I'm going to give you the green car after the switch. And he said, uh, many great pundits have been willing to practice the family practice. So what he meant by that wasn't quite sure. Anyway, he gave me this green car of practice, uh, I flamed it, and that's uh, one of the practices I've done ever since. And thereafter, I met him quite a number of times. They were not easy to meet him, but he was always warning me about He wouldn't carry me on what his movements were going to be. He just passed me off, never put anything with him. Yeah. And, uh, well, it was all very quite expensive, serious, and character. I remember once I was with him in Darjeeling, uh, and he'd just been to, to Nepal. And he'd been visiting in Kasuba. And uh, he told me that. Um, he took many things to one of these students, uh, and he put his hands right in his back. And he put, he put out a handful of riddles with a sort of relic in the form of very tiny coins. Put his hand, and pulled out a handful of riddles. Certain hands were here, here, and they were riddles. So I looked at them and said, uh, This is what I found. He was, he was talking about these riddles in a strange way that I couldn't understand at all. So, Ever been trying to communicate uh, some of the things. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Uh, it was also he who named the Yana Sarasana Bihara, which I acquired shortly after. He actually named it before I got it, before I even knew anything. He said, He told me, You're going to have a Bihara. And I, I said, You have a name. Mm-hmm. And at that stage, I didn't know I was going to have a Bihara. I said, You have a name for Bihara. But he said, You don't have a Bihara. This is what you should call it, the Yana Sarasana Bihara. And he composed and put down a little verse for me. And he was also rich, he was basically how he was meant to the Yana Sarasana Bihara. He was He is, by the way, still alive, so it's very difficult to keep track of him. One of you are going to fight with him, but uh, he's pretty elusive, he's always wandering. He's no longer a monk, uh, if you ever was one, and uh, he's married. In fact, he has two wives, yeah? uh, all three of them together, also, living one together. And uh, one of the people who, who met, or who met him some years ago, was Thomas Merton. He might have heard of Thomas Merton. And uh, Thomas Merton had written that of all the lamas he met in India, he met quite a few, written by the lama, triple Sunday's Dorothy in and he certainly was excited by people taking the field. Yeah. A very remarkable uh, man. One felt there was a depth in him. 
So that's Sangharachita uh, speaking. This is, um, he's there, so he's quite young, with uh, Dujon Rinpoche and Dilgo Kientse Rinpoche, the three of them all together. <coughs> so uh, Sangharachita mentions uh, a couple of things there that I've got some images of. Firstly, the Triyanavardhana Vihara. So Sangharachita lived in Kalimpong in the 50s and uh, lived at various places and at some point he realised he, he, he needed to get somewhere as a base that was more permanent and um, appropriate for a vihara you know, a, uh, a place of practice and a place to live and for him to write and to teach so, uh, as he said in, I don't know whether everyone could hear it very clearly, but it, um, actually Chetal Sangha, he met Chetal Sangha Dorje and Chetal Sangha Dorje predicted that he was going to get this place. And uh, it seems to be a true prediction. Well, it was a true prediction, but Sangha actually wasn't expecting it to happen at all, really, very quickly, although he wanted to, because he had no money, didn't know where he was going to find somewhere, but apparently it all unfolded quite quickly. And uh, Chetal Sangha Dorje... Uh, named it in advance before he'd even found it. As he says, I think he said this in this talk, uh, it was also he who named the Triana Vardhana Vihara, which I acquired shortly after, afterwards. He actually named it before I got it, before I knew I was going to get it. He told me, you're going to have a Vihara and I shall give it a name. At that stage, I didn't know I was going to have a Vihara, certainly didn't have the money for a Vihara, but he said, you're going to have a Vihara, and this is what you should call it, Triyana Vardhana Vihara. So, so that picture, it's not a very good picture, but I, I rather like it, old sort of grainy photograph of the Vihara up, right up on, the, up on the hill, and below it is the bamboo groves. If you read or have read Sangrachita's autobiographies, you'll, you'll, you'll know there's a lot of bamboo groves around Kalimpong. Oops, what was that one? There was no doubt, this is Sangharachita again, there was no doubt that I would establish a permanent monastic centre in Kalimpong, he assured me. In fact, I would establish it quite soon, and I should call it the Vihara where the three yanas flourish or blossom. That's what Triyanavardhana Vihara means. Having given the as, non yet, the, the, the as yet non-existent monastery its name in what I afterwards described as a mood of high spiritual inspiration, Chakral Rinpoche addressed to me the Tibetan original of the following stanzas. So it's quite an extraordinary meeting this. He's, you know, he's not only has he predicted he's going to have a Vihara, he's named it, and then he's, he's just um, recited these stanzas. In the sky devoid of limits... The teaching of the Muni is the sun, spreading the thousand rays of the three shiksas, i.e. morality, meditation and wisdom, continually shining in the radiance of the impartial disciples. May this Jambud Vipa region of the Triyana be fair. And uh, it goes on to say, in accordance with his request, made in the fire monkey year on the ninth day of the first month by the Mahastavira Sangharachita, this was written by the Shakya Upasaka, the Vidyadhara Bodhivadra. May there be happiness and blessings. So um, that's quite an amazing meeting, I think, for him to, 
to do all that in one, in one go. Uh, Vidyadhara Bodhivadra, that would be the um, Sanskrit translation of his Tibetan name. Or roughly, I think. Again, the bamboo grove. It's a picture of, old picture of Sangha actually around the same time. I put it in just to give you a bit more context. Um, some of you might not have seen some of these photographs and earlier pictures of Sangharachita. The, the fact, and says, the fact that Chattel Rinpoche had named my future monastery of his own accord greatly impressed my Tibetan friends, especially those of the Nyingma persuasion. According to Kachu Rinpoche, who came to see me shortly afterwards, it was exceptionally auspicious, as whatever Ch- Rinpoche Chattel Sangha Dorje named was sure to prosper. And uh, he gets, gets his Bihara. Can't quite remember how he got the money for it, but anyway, he's, uh, he managed to, to get this. That's the. I think that's actually the front door. I think, I think the shrine is sort of through the front door. And then uh, he gets on with various things. I presume that's he's been on an arms round with a couple of monks. old photographs looking down on the Bihara. It's actually a complex. There's a main building and a guest house. Various things. I think he might have. This one, the colour one is a more recent photograph. Uh, it's still there. When I was there we went to visit it and um, it's, it was owned by a policeman, local policeman who was very happy to receive visitors and show us around. And what an amazing view. Uh, that's, so it's up on the hill above Kalimpong. It's you know, outside Kalimpong, the Vihara. And this is the sort of environment that not only Sangrachita, of course, would enjoy and live in, but uh, Chetal Sangha Dorje would be familiar with this sort of view. Again, views over the hills. Well, the, the mountains. I'm not sure if that's Kanchenjunga. It might be. Tara. So, as he says in his talk, in 1956, the Rinpoche gave Sangharachita the initiation of Green Tara, the sadhana of which he says he faithfully performed every day for seven years. So Green Tara is a very important figure in Buddhism and a, and a particularly important figure for Sangharachita. Female Bodhisattva of uh, compassion, compassion activity. So, uh, having founded the uh, Friends of the Western Buddhist Order and the Western Buddhist Order, Sangharachita at some point formulates a sense of, well, the eclecticism of our movement, the syncretism. Uh, inf- our influences are very broad from different traditions. And there, some of you have seen the, the refuge tree, which is basically a symbolic representation of the main sources of inspiration for the FWBO. And uh, Sangharachita is on there with his teachers. Um, not very clear, I'm afraid, but Tibetan teachers. But anyway, this is the important bit. This is the, the, the gurus of the present, Sangharachita and, and his main teachers. And there you've got, on the refuge tree, uh, Chetral Rinpoche there. Dujon, Jamyang, Dilgo Kyentse, Dardo, Kachu Rinpoche, and Chatro Rinpoche, those the six Tibetan teachers. 
on the back two rows. Ah, okay, so um, Sangaracha mentions Thomas Merton. Uh, everyone, people heard of Thomas Merton? Some have, some haven't. Um, I find him a very inspiring figure, Thomas Merton. He um, was a Trappist monk, um, mainly in America. I think he was born in France. For, uh, he's, anyway, he, effectively American. And... Um, lived a very austere monastic life. Um, the Trappists are very um, um, serious uh, about silence and yeah, they're just, you know, they don't, you're not allowed to go out and all sort of things like that. But he's got, um, Thomas Merton was a, a writer. He really, really wanted to write and study. And he wrote a lot of letters and autobiography and stuff, and they eventually let him write and publish stuff, which isn't normal for the Trappists. Uh, but he also had a bit of a desire to go and travel, and eventually they let him out. I don't know quite, this is near the end of his life, but he's, I don't know what, quite what age he is, but anyway, it's, it's after many years of you know, being in his monastery and a few trips they let him out. Eventually they let him go to Asia. He was a friend, or he corresponded with uh, D.T. Suzuki, the Zen scholar, and uh, had a deep um, passion to explore the other religions. And in particular, he made a connection with Buddhism. Um, and so when he was in Asia, he, he went to meet different lamas, lots of different ones. And, but he had a particularly strong con um, meeting with Chapter Rinpoche, Thomas Merton. And he writes about it in his, uh, it's in his Asian journals, the Asian journals of Thomas Merton. I recommend, it's a good read, it's a very um, honest uh, account of a spiritual path from a Christian mystic sort of approach. And I find it very um, illuminating actually, quite, quite starts to get quite close to what uh, some of the mystical Buddhist um, uh, direction, I think. I think that's why he made such a connection with Chatra Rinpoche. So uh, Thomas Merton meets meets the Rinpoche, and he says, uh, "This is in it's, this is from Thomas Merton's Asian Journal." He said he had meditated in solitude for thirty years or more, and had not attained perfect emptiness. And I said I hadn't either. The unspoken or half-spoken message of the talk was our complete understanding of each other as people who were somehow on the edge of great realisation and knew it and were trying somehow or other to go out and get lost in it and that it was a grace for us to meet one another. I wish I could see more of Chatral. He burst out and called me a Rangjung Sangye, which apparently means a natural Buddha and said that he'd been named a Sangye Dorje. He wrote Rangjung Sangye for me in Tibetan and said that when I entered the great kingdom and the palace, then America and all that, and all that was in it would seem like nothing. So I think they had quite a strong <coughs> mind meeting, um, Merton and uh, Chattel Sangye Dorje. He told me seriously that perhaps he and I would attain complete Buddhahood in our next lives perhaps even in this life, 
and the parting note was a kind of compact that we would both do our best to make it in this life. I was profoundly moved because he is so obviously a great man, the true practitioner of Dzogchen, the best of the Nyingmapa lamas, marked by complete simplicity and freedom. If I were going to settle down with a Tibetan guru, I think Chakral would be the one I'd choose. Now, um, I, I, I find, why I find that interesting, partly because of the, I've, I've sort of subtitled this presentation, Connections and Interconnections. And I find that very interesting, this, and there's quite a sad end to the tale with Thomas Merton. Reading his journals, I got a very strong sense that he, 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 he could quite easily have taken Chapter Rinpoche as, as a teacher. Um, he was very dedicated to his Trappist practice. Um, it's quite clear that. But um, whilst in Asia, he, he died in Asia of an accident. So this is right near the end of his life. It's really sad because uh, we don't know what would have happened next. He was in um, Bangkok at some... Um, uh, meeting, interfaith, I'm not sure what it was, some sort of religious Christian meeting. And in his hotel, he was found electrocuted. And uh, I think they said the, there'd been faulty wiring and he'd touched a fan. There was a fan in the, in the hotel room and he died in Asia. Very, very sad because it really culminates something quite special is going on with Merton and Rinpoche. But after, I put this little quote in as well. Uh, Thomas Merton uh, was inspired by Kanchenjunga, which is one of the big mountains um, in, in the Himalayas. After meeting Chetal Sangha Dorje, he had this dream. He said, last night I had a curious dream about Kanchenjunga. I was looking at the mountain and it was pure white, absolutely pure, especially the peaks that lie to the west. And I saw the pure beauty of their shape and outline all in white. And I heard a voice saying, or got the clear idea of, there is another side to the mountain. I realised that it was turned around and everything was lined up differently. I was seeing from the Tibetan side. This morning, my quarrel, quarrel with the mountain is ended. Not that it is a big love affair, but why get mad at a mountain? It is beautiful, chastely white in the morning sun and right in view of the bungalow window. There is another side of Kanchenjunga and of every mountain the side that has never been photographed and turned into postcards. That is the only side worth seeing. It's a beautiful quote, um, an evocation of, of, a, of a mountain as a spiritual inspiration. But what really strikes me is, uh, this is my, it's an interpretation completely, but um, I was seeing from the Tibetan side. Yeah, I was seeing from the Tibetan side. He's suddenly seeing things from another side. I can't help but interpret that perhaps in um, symbolic terms, that he'd actually had a bit of a shift around in his own perceptions, having met Chetl Sangay Dorje. Seeing the other side of the mountain, yeah, we have our familiar mountain views, i.e. our familiar life. Yeah, it's a mountain, isn't it? We see it's big in front of us. But what happens when sometimes we just see from a completely different perspective, it's like, oh, there's another side to life. My interpretation, but... I think it's a valid and interesting way of looking at that quote and that, it, that dream of Thomas Merton. Maybe that's the sort of view Sangharachita would have had, Chattel Sangadorji would have been familiar with, and Thomas Merton was inspired. Both photographs from Sangharachita's collection. Donald Grayson was a follower of Thomas Merton, Canadian, 
in 2000 2000 and followed Merton's footsteps. I won't read it because I'm reading quite a lot (laughs) off screen. But um, I just just come across this on the internet, so I thought I'd put it in. Uh, He was inspired by Merton, followed in his footsteps around Asia. Of course, went to meet Chetel Sange Dorje, had a load of questions, uh, couldn't ask them just in his presence and just started crying. He just said, I don't know why. I just... I didn't understand it. I just couldn't stop crying. <laughs> and he said, I only had one question uh, that I could really come out. No, in fact, in fact, the Chetel Sanger Dorje said to him, do you, have you got any questions? And he said, yes, do you have a teaching for me, which is the best thing to fall back if you've lost it. You know? And um, uh, I think Chetel Sanger Dorje's response is amazing. He says, cause Donald Grayston is a, a priest in the Christian tradition, Sanger Georgie says, yes, I've got a um, teaching for you. Um, find Jesus' most important teaching and pursue it to its ultimate extreme. Take it as far as you can. Just decide what is the most important thing Jesus ever said and then take it as far as you can. Un- unworthy Christian that I am, this finished me. Weeping became sobbing. I bowed respectfully in farewell and was taken by my young Canadian friend to be rehabilitated with Kleenex and tea. (laughs) I put it in because I've never heard of Don Grayson, but I just thought, wow, it's beautiful. It's a very receptive and inspiring story. Okay, getting near the end. There's not many books uh, about Chetel Sange Dorje. The one that's out recently by Zach Larson... Uh, it's a small um, paperback, easy to get hold of. Compassionate act- Action, The Teachings of Chattel Rinpoche. Um, I find it slightly disappointing, the book. <laughs> Try not to put people off. But, uh, it's, it's, it, because he doesn't, you know, he just doesn't it go in for like recording and transcribing lots of talks. He, there's some, uh, some things that have been transcribed by Chapter Rinpoche in there, his, some of his talks, and there's a little bit of information about his life. Uh, a bit, you can find out a bit more than I've told you tonight, um, and a really obscure sort of autobiographical piece. I mean, I, I probably like a lot of the Tibetan teachers, he's gone into a sort of quite symbolic sort of language. I couldn't read it; I didn't understand it. I, it was like it was all like Tibetan imagery and. Vajradhara this and that it was all on the sort of archetypal plane it was like a, it was I don't know I just wasn't there so <laughs> not a thing about oh I was born here and then you know my dad did this and my mum did that it was none of that and it's very hard to find all that sort of stuff and anyway have a look at it if you're curious but the, for me the most important thing about this book is uh, his vegetarian stance is really strong Since meat-eating is not approved for anyone, not for monks, nuns or lay people, those who are committed Buddhist practitioners should never eat meat. Um, Knowing all the faults of meat and alcohol, I've made a commitment to give them up in front of the great Bodhi tree in Bodhgaya, with the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas of the Ten Directions as my witness. I have also declared this moral to all my monasteries. Um, That's quite a strong statement for Tibetan Lamas, because I don't know what I'd like to know what the percentage is, but I think most Tibetans would eat meat partly because they have to, you know, in Tibet. 
But there is a slight move now to uh, discourage meat-eating within the Tibetan community. Some of you might know more about this than me, but um, I was heartened by this. The current Karmapa uh, is also onto this as well. He's uh, insisting that his monks and the monasteries that he's oversees uh, be- become vegetarian because they can now. You know. No doubt in Tibet it's not really possible because <coughs> the uh, the landscape. But anyway, he's very strong on uh, this. And there's a monastery sign at Parping in the Kathmandu Valley. He's got a monastery in Kathmandu. And this is one of the signs you see. In this Buddhist monastery, the consumption of meat, alcoholic beverage and tobacco, as well as playing cards and gambling, is strictly prohibited. (laughs) You might think that would be quite a standard thing on a Tibetan Buddhist monastery, but apparently not. It's uh, it's a newish, newish sort of thing. I don't know. The white, it's, well, is it a scarf or a, a throw? Uh, no, I'm afraid I don't know. Okay, and um, with that, I think that's, that's just about the end of the uh, presentation. Nearly, just under an hour. <laughs> so thank you for bearing with me. I'm really sorry. I'm a bit disappointed about the technology because I was looking forward to I'm glad we persevered, and at least you've had some sort of visuals. Um, um, I really wanted to communicate something a bit more visually uh, than theoretical, so I hope that's come across, and a few stories as well.